and gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations Podcast, episode 54, Studio 54. Is my wife in there? We are going to be taking a look back uh, just at the first phase of Studio 54. I didn't know it came in layers or any of this. It's just the original Studio 54, when it opened, and it only had about a two and a half year run until it got shut down. And then anytime subsequently somebody has opened a Studio 54 nightclub, it has been trying to imitate what that first run of Studio 54 did. So we're just going to be looking at the first couple of years Studio 54 was open. Then it got shut down and what it was. I picked the, I picked the topic because I, I didn't really know where to place Studio 54. I've heard it referenced a lot. Like I've heard people refer to Studio 54. I'm pretty sure there's a movie in the late 90s called Studio 54 that I think I watched when I was in like maybe 12 years old. I didn't really get it. But anyway, I, I've heard it thrown around. I don't know where to place it in history. 30 years from like from the late 60s until 87, I don't really know when music... I know when specific bands are, but I don't really understand the flow of where music went in America. And so I wanted to at least have this buoy as far as culturally knowing like, all right, well, when was... What, like Disco was when here? This was it? Like Studio 54 is referred to as the end of disco. Which I don't, I don't know, maybe my favorite uncle hates two things, and it's Disney World and disco, but it's a, th it's a cultural thing to know. I didn't know that Studio 54 was referred to as, like, the death of disco. So we're going to look back at this nightclub. It's, it more or less breaks down into just a two-year cash grab. These two, these two dudes opened this place, and they made so much money. For, we're going to go into both owners, and then I, I looked at Studio 54 like it was World War I. Like, it... <laughs> Is how I was taught World War One in I think tenth grade by Miss McAndrew. She she taught me World War One was broken down to like a powder keg, and that's why it blew up and became a big deal. And I don't know why I thought of Miss McAndrew, but that's kind of how. From looking into Studio Fifty Four, I was like, this kind of seems like a powder keg that went off, honestly. But like, not a whole lot of people died. A bunch of people blacked out. A couple marriages probably ruined. But it didn't. I mean, it wasn't World War One with a bunch of dead bodies, but. I don't know, so that's how I that's how I broke it up. So we're gonna go through Studio 54. Why was it a big deal through the lens of a World War One breakdown? And also just talking about what was Studio 54? What was disco? What was it? I don't know any of this. I'm completely blind to this. But what I what I would go on to find out is that it, it was like a half celebrity clubhouse. It was just so much money. It was so but I didn't understand why Studio 54 blew up because there was other nightclubs that had Disco music, other nightclubs that had drugs, that had, I mean, there was like sex clubs you could go to. There was, there was money everywhere and famous people bopped around, but like because Studio 54, I think because it had all of them in that powder keg and it, the way it went off, when it went off, when disco was, because disco started apparently in the mid 70s, I found out. And I think Studio 54, I mean, it's referred to as the end of disco once the place got shut down because it was such... I mean, at least in my opinion, it was a World War One powder keg of party time. And then after that, Disco just couldn't survive it. That's my theory on it. So we're doing Studio 54. Also, there's there's uh, rumblings of there's going to be another lockdown or lock-in where you get a, because of the pandemic, you got to lock it. So I heard that and I was like, well, if circumstances dictate that we might not be allowed to party for a while, if that happens, let's go ahead and take a look back at I don't know, people call this, it was like the, a once-in-a-lifetime, like the only nightclub in the world that was like this at the time. So we're going to go through how do you get in, guest list, World War One breakdown, and then how it all came to an end. We're doing Studio 54. Just real quick cliff notes on it. If, if you just need a reference point, Studio 54, super popular nightclub. They call it Death Disco when it got shut down. It ran from 77 to 1980, and the owners got arrested for tax embezzlement. That's the short of it. That's the short of it. If that's all, if you just want a reference point. Now we'll go into a little bit deeper. All right, Studio 54 was founded by two dudes, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubel. Now, these guys were friends from college. They both went to Syracuse. Now, going forward in Studio 54, it was a strange partnership. People refer to it as kind of a strange partnership because they were almost total opposites. Steve Rubel was like a very, he was the face. He was the host. He was the guy who would make sure everybody's having a good time. He would go out. People say he handed out drugs. I mean, almost everybody says he handed out a ton of drugs. He was, 
he was the coordinator of the night. It was his job to make sure everybody was having fun. He was the face of the business. Ian Schrager was a real estate lawyer who was also financially savvy. He's got some craftiness to him. And, oh, by the way, I bought a, uh, I bought a book on this because I thought I, uh, I thought it would be cool to learn more about it. But I bought a book written by Mark Fleischman, who was the owner of Studio 54 after this time period. So the time period we're looking at is 77 to 80. Mark Fleischman's the dude who buys Studio 54 off of Ian Schrager and Steve Robel after they get arrested. So it wasn't like it was a way. I mean, I listened to some of it. It was, it was pretty good. But it turned into just a time period I wasn't going to cover on this episode. I mean, but it's still, it's, I'm, the guy did talk about the Studio 54 effect. He said it got to him. He said it got to Steve Rubell. He said it got to, I mean, the Studio 54 effect was known as something that just kind of happened to you when, when you went to this place. Which I think was just shorthand for lose your mind. Just get, just get nuts. Just wild, anything you want. And if you act any kind of way, you're going to get thrown out and you're going to be embarrassed about it. But yeah, the Studio 54 effect, Mark Fle- I mean, he also talks about how he bought it off of Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell afterwards while Ian and Steve were in jail, which is interesting, which I'll talk to it, we'll talk about at the end. But mostly, we're just going to focus on this two-year two time period, two-and-a-half-year time period where they were just making so much money. And I don't know if they had a plan to get out, honestly. It just, I think they, they thought they were doing a good job, but Steve, it just got kind of carried away with them. But that, those are the two guys who founded Studio 54, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell. Uh, Ian Schrager was a straight dude, and Steve Rubell was a gay dude. And Steve Rubell was like in like the club scene and knew a lot, had a lot of contacts like that. And Ian Schrager, allegedly in Mark Fleischman's book, which is why I brought him up, says that Ian Schrager may have been the guy to handle mafia payments and cash to... Some mafia organization while Studio 54 was up and running in New York City to make sure everything went all right. That was in the Fleischman book. But so Schrager was financial craftiness, planning things out. But Schrager also planned like some of the event nights. He didn't, he wasn't completely creatively barren when it came to planning the events of Studio 54. But Rubel was the guy who was out there shaking hands. And if you see the, they made a movie in early, like the late 90s, late 1990s about Studio 54. Mike Myers plays Steve Rubell, and from more than one person, when I was looking into this, they said Mike Myers did a really great job playing Steve Rubell. But the movie doesn't have Ian Schrager in it. That's the that's the one that Studio It was always a partnership between the two guys. But movie from the late '90s only has Mike Myers as the owner, Steve Rubell. But people say he did a great job playing the guy. So Studio Fifty Four. What the fuck was it? What was this? Well, the actual building. That Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell, who decided to go into business, be like, we're a star nightclub, here we go. And uh, I believe Schrager had a couple successful properties beforehand, and a couple, they had a couple, like, startup clubs that didn't go great, but they found a space that they wanted to make the club in New York City in, and it was an old theater that was built in 1927. Uh, and it had been used by CBS to film kids' shows recently, so it was like, like a television studio. So it had studio lighting already into it. There's a huge stage. Also, where the theater was located in Manhattan, I believe it was in Manhattan. I better get that right. This is a New York City episode. I fucking better get this right. Because the bouncer, I don't know if it was, I believe it was in Manhattan. I'm not going to stop the episode. Man, if I got that wrong, sorry. But I don't think so because they were kind of judgy about who they let in. The They were like, uh, it's called Manhattanite Elitist at the door, which we'll get to in a second. I think it was in Manhattan. But the area it was in in New York City it was, a, it was a great theater, old theater, but it was also surrounded by porno theaters. So when all these rich, famous people go to this nightclub that's kind of like under the radar secret hideout that is tough to get into, they have to drive through a seedy like porno theater area looking out the windows being like, where the fuck am I? And then they hit this hidden Xanadu where they get in, they pay, it's 15 bucks to the doorman, but the money's not really the problem as far as getting in goes. Also in the building itself, the stage was a huge deal. Because it was a bigger building than anybody else had tried this type of thing in before. It was a huge fucking building. And both of those dudes were kind of like, all right, here we go. It's a big building. But somebody was like, this is a great property. It's got a stage. Here's the thing. We're not putting the DJ on the stage. Not putting the performance on the stage. The stage is the dance floor. And apparently that was a big decision 
that made that uh, created a like a vibe where everybody in Studio Fifty Four felt like a star a little bit because they were on stage. That was sort of the vibe as far as let go of your like any sort of inhibitions. They, they, you can kind of leave them at the door at Studio Fifty Four because everybody's their own star here. And the building, the actual design of the theater, how they chose to put where people dance at, they're one of the first places to do that. All right, the doorman. I also Studio Fifty Four claims that they were the first place to do the velvet rope thing, which I, the velvet rope thing, I know of it. I really haven't encountered a whole lot. I don't know if you could tell or not. I didn't really have a big club uh, period of my life. Wasn't really uh, uh, so. All this is interesting to learn about. I don't know how. I don't know how any of this shit works. So it's like, all right. I honestly, I, I mean, you know, like I don't need like. I've always just seen this kind of anxiety. I've never really gotten good at it. Some guys are good at it. It's like skating party. Like remember going to like uh, like fifth grade skating parties? Where there's lasers and shit going around. And you're just kind of like, uh, I'm kind of I'm gonna play video games. I don't know. I I just kind of did that. For my 20s. And then I'm 33 now. So it's like I'm passing. Like we're done. Like it's done. It's done. It's done. We've missed. I don't have to even worry about really getting good at that anymore. I might have to dance at weddings. Some. That's alright. That's not bad. You're around people you, you kind of know. And if you're not. you Hopefully you have a date there. That's not bad. Never really. Dancing's a big part of this. And I don't. I'm, I'm not acting like dancing isn't a big deal to some people. I've just never. I don't know. I've never taken time to get good at it. I think, honestly. So I just, I, it's just sixth grade skating party. This is so. I don't know if this place, this place would be definitely fun if you were a famous person. If you were just a regular guy, and you somehow got it. If you're just a regular guy, you wouldn't get in. Let's go to the doorman. All right. If you're just a regular guy, so this was the first place to do that shit where it's like, all right, point to the middle of the line, and that guy gets in, or like, all right, you two in the back. Come up here. Studio 54 was the first place to do that. The idea of like, oh no, we're not letting everybody in. And that was a huge part of their hook and their appeal to the public is that like, oh shit, it's like hard to get into this place. Now, if the, if the place sucked, it wouldn't have worked. But it was one of the one of the pieces of the powder keg that was all mushed together to make the most popular nightclub and make so much fucking money at the end of disco was that they did the velvet rope thing. So... I mean, unless you were a celebrity, because when they opened the club up, they already had a guest list made, and they had help on the guest list from other celebrities who were already in the know of, like, this place is open up, Steve Rubell's a part of it with his duty and Schrager, it's going to be like a secret hideout, allegedly, for celebrities, at least show up to the premiere. So before they even opened up, they were, like, Andy Warhol already contributed to like these are the people I want on this list for this nightclub and Andy Warhol was a huge deal at the end I'll touch on Andy Warhol because I kind of went down a Andy Warhol rabbit hole because I don't really know anything about him and I wanted to find out like why is it I knew so little about Andy Warhol I don't know I didn't know why it would matter to have Andy Warhol be in a nightclub I that's that's pretty that's embarrassing he's like a really famous artist but I had they kept saying Andy Warhol was in this place and I didn't understand it so I had to do I Trying to figure out Andy Warhol a little bit, but we'll hit that at the end. But the guest list already, the night it opens up, it's about 300 people long, and it has contributions from people like Andy Warhol on it. So, like, if you're just a regular guy, you're, pro you're probably not getting in. If you're just a regular anybody, you're probably not getting in. The people who would get in at line, and a lot of people would just wait outside in line all night, cold as fuck. And they weren't dressed in, like, regular clothes a lot of the time, because part of it, you could, you could get in... If you went real avant-garde with it, if you and your girlfriend dressed up like luchador wrestlers and said you were from Europe, you might have had a shot to get in if you could do like a moonsault. They'll probably let you in, but it's got to be that level of nuts because the guest list is Andy Warhol. Let's take a look who you're, who you're competing with, and this is just during the two-year period, and this isn't all the names of the people who showed up. I just picked the ones that kind of stood out to me as the one, it would probably knock me on my dick if I saw him anywhere. It would kind of break my reality to be like, holy shit, that's Ric Flair. So these are the people that are already on the guest list if you're just a nobody showing up trying to get into Studio 54 during the heyday. Obviously, Andy Warhol, he helped make the list. John Belushi, Al Pacino, Salvador Dali, Mick Jagger, and his daughter Bianca Jagger, who was a big deal back then. I didn't know that. 
And I don't know if they always came together or what. I don't know what that was like, but they both hung out there. I don't know if it's the same time or what. Calvin Klein, the, ac- the, the actual guy Calvin Klein would show up. Richard Pryor, Geraldo Rivera snuck in through the fucking air conditioning system somehow. Ric Flair already hit that one. David Bowie, Elton John, Diana Ross, Sylvester Stallone, and Jack Nicholson. I'm sorry, not, uh, I'm not sure. I think Diana Ross hung out there, but definitely Gloria Gaynor. And also Jack Nicholson. And I looked up what Jack Nicholson this would be because he spanned his career as long as fuck. I don't know which one this was. So the Jack Nicholson, if you went to go hang out at Studio 54 and you got in somehow during the first period from 77 to 80, you would be in there with Jack from, this is after Easy Rider, after Chinatown, and about two years after One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was, he, The Shining came out in 1980. So during this time period, at some point in time, he filmed The Shining. This is like about to film or just film The Shining, Jack Nicholson. And Al Pacino might be bopping around somewhere. Salvador Dali. Some... These are the people that are already on the list and they show up regularly. So if you're in line, you got to do something. And the doorman said that he used to let people in like he was casting a movie. So it's like, I am a tall, bald guy. So let's imagine I'm like a very rich, tall, bald guy who knows how to dress himself nice for a nightclub. If they already have, first off, probably not getting in. Bad posture, honestly. But if I did get put in, it's because there's no other tall, bald guys in there yet. If there was, I would guess that like they had like a quota. I would guess it'd probably be maybe one or may, maybe one, maybe more. I don't know. You can have like a rich, if Bezos is in there, you're going to have at least two. Bezos is getting in. But that's how they would do it. And this whole thing was new. The idea of telling people that you can't get in. So I imagine there was a lot of arguments when this first opened up because people just didn't understand what you were saying. It's like, no, you can't come in, dude. It's like, what is it, full? It's like, no, it's not full. You just cannot come in. It, it added to the charm and it added to the Studio 54 effect. So if you got in from the line somehow, then you did become a star. You became like a little bit famous in your head because there were people that they weren't letting in also, you walk in, the first place you'd walk in through two smoky glass doors, and then you'd head through something called the Hall of Hedonism. I don't know. Then you open up, and the first thing you would see after you come out of the Hall of Hedonism is that you the whole uh, like theater space opens up, and it was designed that way by the owners to be able to kind of stun you a little bit with like, holy shit, you get a whole look at everything. There was a, sh- a chandelier. They had, la- they had the theater lighting already up. And back then, I know you could do it with like a screensaver now, but syncing up like lights with the beat of the music was new. They did that. They had a giant chandelier in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the dance floor that they shot lasers into. That was to the beat of disco. Also, just touch on this. Disco was important because disco is apparently the easiest music to dance to. And I think it was designed that way. But that's what I found out about disco is that it was... The easiest because there's a heavy kick drum beat. Now, again, I'm not going to say, I'm, if you can't dance to disco, I'm, the, I'm not going to make fun of you, dude. I don't know. I don't really try to dance much, honestly. But apparently, it's the easiest type of music to dance to and the easiest type of music to lose yourself in. If you were going to do that, you know? So, anyway, so you get hit. You walk in through a hall of hedonism. What's up? Chandelier. Lights. It's like being hammered at a laser tag. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're out of your mind. There's drugs everywhere. There is, it's, oh, and there's also mirrors everywhere, which kind of plays into it because there's, not everywhere, but a lot of places, especially upstairs, there's a lot of sex going on. We didn't get there yet, but you walk in, you see everything, and it's designed to stun you and make you kind of forget who you are and forget about your regular life and completely lose your inhibitions and get, get wild, dude. So, the music was disco, it was going, oh, also, there's drag queens, all over, and 24 hours a day, this is their job, drag queens, all over the place. They're, they're coming, and they, they're, they're coming from upstairs, coming from downstairs, there's, I mean, the bar back, there's all sorts of shit going on here. Uh, and as far as the drugs go, now, I know that there were quaaludes, and I didn't know what quaaludes were, so we're gonna do, just real quick, this is what quaaludes are. All right. Also, another name, like slang for quaaludes, was wall bangers, because people would eat them and then fall into walls, which I thought was fun. Which is like, oh yeah, dude, he's fucking, he's, uh, he's 
hammered on wall bangers, dude. Look at him, dude. He fucking fell down the steps again, dude. He's dressed like the Loch Ness Monster with his dick out. People would just show up in costumes, by the way. That's not unheard of. I don't mean to skip over that. Like, they had a giraffe one night, and everybody's blown out of their mind on coke. Let me just do the drugs first. So, everybody's on Quaaludes. These were really popular. Now, Quaaludes were first invented as malaria medicine in India. It didn't work. It didn't work for malaria, but it did kind of sedate the patients. Uh, it also allegedly has an effect to make you like horny or more horny or more predisposed to be able to become horny. I, which threw me, threw me off because I don't, I thought horniness was kind of like dreams where like science doesn't really know exactly how that works. You know how they don't know how dreams work where they're like, they, there's different theories on it. I don't know, anyway, so like quaaludes apparently do that to you, and they were started as malaria medicine. Those malaria patients didn't get better with malaria, but they had other effects when they took it. So they preserved the drug, and then there was an app in 1961, the Japanese were eating a ton of quaaludes. They were, they were the, a ton of Japanese people were just, they had a quaalude addiction epidemic in 61. But it still wasn't outlawed, and even in the U.S., it, you could get it with a prescription. Now, they were getting a bad rap as like because they were really popular as recreational drugs during disco and especially at Studio 54, everybody was eating these fucking things. The owner, Steve Rubell, was giving them out. Steve Rubell's nickname was the King of Ludes. These things were everywhere. Now, what do they do to you? All right, apparently, and I'm not a, a pharmacologist. Now, it's different than benzodiazepines, which are like Xanax and Valium, and people were eating those at this place too. But the way that your brain receptors absorb benzodiazepines is different than they would take in quaaludes. Apparently, quaaludes go into the part of your brain that they use uh, anesthesia. Anesthe One of the anesthesia chemicals goes into the same part that your quaaludes would be going into. I don't know. Is there another horniness dream connection there? Am I putting the pieces together scientifically? No, absolutely not. But that's just what I remember is that it goes into the same part that they put anesthesia in your brain. So the withdrawal on it apparently wasn't as bad as like off uh, benzodiazepines or, or coke or anything like that. And quaaludes are a downer. But not to the point where it uh, would impair respiration. Like they sedate you like alcohol a little bit. And apparently they just make you horny and euphoric. They also do... Uh, there's major... Uh, there's motor function impairment too, like alcohol. But again, it doesn't fuck your breathing up. Now, you can overdose on them, though. I watched like a 20-minute on Quaaludes to see what was going on with this. And I thought they were illegal or out. I thought they were totally done. Quaaludes still around. Not, not in America or the UK or Australia. But Quaaludes, real popular recreationally in South Africa. Apparently, they cook it up in, uh, like, India or, like, in the India. Like, where the Dutch East India Trading Company used to run shit. With the silver trade and like that in the Indian Ocean. Chris, Indian Ocean. Just say Indian Ocean. There's a big Quaaludes trade down there. So the Quaaludes are still around in the world. They're just not in the United States. So yeah, people were eating a ton of Quaaludes and they were also mixing that with alcohol. So that's downer, downer. They were eating Vicodin or, uh, or I'm sorry, Valium. They didn't have Xanax at the time, but other benzodiazepines. So those are the downers that were being eaten at this place. Also, I mean, people were eating angel dust. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much anything you could think of. People were smoking weed in the line outside before they get in. And all of it was in the open. It was part of the secret clubhouse nature of this. Where, like, we're going to, I mean, all the celebrities go there. But they're, they're celebrities, but they know that drugs are just in the open. It's not a big deal. Nobody's going to make a big deal out of this. Everybody's just happy to be there and everybody's partying. Now, so if Quaaludes and Benzos and alcohol were the down, the up was a lot of cocaine. A lot of cocaine, which would balance it out as a stimulant. Uh, they also had speed, but mostly cocaine. I mean, they had a, uh, I believe it was an 11-foot neon sign that was in a, a shape of a crescent moon, and then a spoon going into the moon's nose, and it was filled with cocaine of, uh, like, shiny, glimmery, sequined cocaine going up the moon's nose. And the night they opened, they just dropped that down into the center of the dance floor to pick a tone. So there was... There's more than a little bit of cocaine at this place, which would also give you euphoria and uh, sexual arousal. So you're putting that on top of quaaludes, happiness, you know, 
It's a big up. At some point in time, when Steve Rubell got uh, one of the owners, Steve Rubell kind of went off the rails a little bit, and which would eventually lead to the IRS raiding the place. The the updown he was running is that he would uh, he would get high as fuck on coke at night, and then in the morning he would eat quaaludes to calm down a little bit, or quaaludes and Valium, and then but he would st- he would also go out to after hours clubs because. If Studio 54 closed at 5 p.m. or 5 a.m., then there was cars outside to take you from the place that parties from 5.30 a.m. till 11 a.m., and you could just keep running like that. And Studio 54 opened at noon, so at the end, the up-down Steve Rubel was running was like, Coke, 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 alcohol, alcohol, wake up, Quaaludes, chill, chill, chill. Right back at it, right back at it. And then he made a mistake in the press, and that's how he ended up getting busted. But those are... Just a couple of the drugs. I'm sure I'm missing some. Anything you could think of was at Studio 54, and it was done openly, but, like, you know, don't throw it around, but, like, eh, it's fun. They Somebody said that nobody, everybody had drugs at Studio 54. The only time somebody didn't have drugs was then, was when Steve Rubell was handing out free drugs. Like, if he would ask a celebrity, like, you know, do you have, uh, do you want some Coke? And then all of a sudden that celebrity doesn't have Coke, but really that celebrity has Coke, but he's just getting free drugs from... From the owner, you know? Also, there was a ton of money here. This is a very laissez-faire attitude. Everybody's not really thinking about their real life. And money doesn't really matter here. Nobody's complaining about drink tickets. If you complain about fucking drink prices, you probably get thrown out. That was another thing Steve Rubell did while the party was happening in Studio 54. It was just a night dance that people were inside. Everybody's already past the door, man. Steve Rubell would hammer down some quaaludes. And then just go walk around the club and kick people out that he didn't like. They didn't like what your hat was. Dude, he would throw you out. You fucking wait in line for four hours. You get in for 15 minutes. He throws you out because you wore like snakeskin cowboy boots. And you're like, that looks like shit. Get out of here. Meanwhile, there's somebody else with snakeskin cowboy boots. I don't know. There's just, there's like a Pac-Man ghost going around and you just hope he doesn't eat you. (laughs) Which is so, apparently people like to watch Steve Rubell go around and tap people on the shoulder and be like, it's time for you to leave. And nobody would fight back. That's the thing. It was so new. The idea of like you need to have this place let you in. That if you got kicked out because, I don't know, you wore the wrong. I don't even know, man. I can't even come up with anything. People were wearing fucking costumes. If you dress like Mr. Met. If you have the Mr. Met head on. You have a sequin vest and no pants on. He was like, I like the Yankees. And he threw you out. Which could have happened. You can't complain about it. You can't be like, what do you mean? You don't like Mr. Matt? It's like. No, dude, if you fucking complain, I'm Steve Rubell, and I'll remember you forever, and you'll never get back in. Which was devastating to the people who were in Studio 54, because when they were in there, it was a total escape. Which is what the general public wanted from going to Studio 54. And I think, I don't have any celebrities to ask, but if I was going to guess, the celebrities also appreciated it. Like, nice, dude, nobody's causing problems in here, we're doing all the fucking drugs we want, we're partying the fuck down. One more thing, people are having sex all over this place. I mean, not necessarily on the dance floor, but that was a part. Now, there were clubs in New York you could go to that were sex clubs. But as I understand it, Studio 54 wasn't started as a sex club. It was started as a dance club. But then people just, I mean, the owners had to have some idea that they knew this was going to go on because the upstairs room was referred to as the rubber room. And so the balcony area had rubber walls and, and floors. It's just rubber. NHL hockey. Just a, made out of hockey puck material. And the reason that they lined it with rubber is so they could spray it down with a hose every morning and it made it easier to clean because so many people were having sex up there. And it wasn't like they, they, they would just go have sex during the middle of the night. Blow me I mean, this is, that's... Hose it down? We got a hose up on the second floor? I don't, I don't know. And it wouldn't... It wouldn't be like you'd go to the Studio 54 and some people would maybe be having sex in a hideaway closet in the basement. It was like, no, no, no. Like People kept their clothes on and like, I don't know, just hiked up a skirt or something. Did something up in the up in the place that smells like Hollydale Ice Arena and then came back down and kept dancing. That's how it happened. You would like meet somebody, you would dance with them a little bit, then you'd do coke, and then you'd go upstairs. And this wasn't, this was both uh, like gay dudes and straight so, like, there was dude, dude, and dude, it was just anything, man, and it, that was just what, what it was, dude, they had anything, it was party city up there, dude, they could sell you a Mylar balloon in the back for five bucks if you got a birthday coming up, fucking save your time, think ahead while you're here, 
The upstairs rubber room is nuts. Also, I mean, they, the whole play, it wasn't just one thing where like, oh, there's people fucking, everybody's doing coke, everybody's dancing, we're going to go till 5 a.m. and you can get in after hours club. And this music's super easy to dance to and everybody knows you, if you don't, if you start any kind of trouble and you get kicked out, you got to be as nice as possible because you want to come back in here because this is the most popular nightclub in the world right now. Like, there was so much money in this place that somebody told a story where, I think it was like a bar back was talking, and they were like, money didn't matter to anybody in there, so much so that they he saw a dude do coke with a, a rolled-up $100 bill and then throw the $100 bill on the ground. And then he saw another dude pick up that $100 bill and then do coke with that $100 bill, the second guy, and throw it back on the ground and walk away. Like, money was, it wasn't, nobody was complaining about drinking. They were just there to dance and have a good time and go nuts. It was, this place made so much money. And people came back and they bought into the, the idea of you have to earn your way into the club because of all of the famous, of course you got to get picked to go in there. Dude, Jack Nicholson's in there. One floor of the coop is nice. Fucking Chinatown's in there. Al Pacino's in there. I saw Bowie over there, Mick Jagger's daughter's in there. I don't know. I don't really want to look at him. I don't want Mick Jagger to be mad at me. I hope Mick Jagger thinks I'm cool. I would never have gotten into this fucking place. This is just a place that I would not, it was just, I mean, maybe. I don't, I, probably not. Definitely not. What the fuck am I going to do? I'd be like, nah. This just isn't my scene. But it's fun to learn about what Studio 54 was. It was fucking nuts. They had a giraffe in there one time. There's a guy, there's a, a, a dude, there's a naked chick who had a guy on a leash, and the guy on the leash was her husband, and he was dressed like Abraham Lincoln, just walking around. And nobody thought that was weird. People were like, fuck, yeah, what's going on here? Also, that wasn't the only naked There was naked ladies. They were naked everybody all over the place, all the time, if you got in. And then when you got out, nobody talked about it. Also, keep in mind, this is pre-cell phones. This is pre-internet. This is 77, 78, 79. So nobody has, you don't have to worry about somebody having cameras, taking a picture. Am I going to be in the back of somebody's picture? There's no fucking way. Nobody can text you. you. Nobody's looking at their phone. All there is to do is dance and talk to people. You know, do some, do coke, angel dust. I don't know. Angel dust is loosening. You're also not supposed to mix quaaludes with anything that I also said, but they were doing that. If you find somebody, perhaps the rubber room upstairs is for you. I don't, it smells like the Phantom's Ice Arena. This place was making, this place was fucking crazy. They were making so much money. So much money. But that's how they went, that's how they went down. Oh, one more thing as far as, this definitely doesn't count as dancing or music or drug. I guess you gotta put it in sex. So like, they would also like, have nights where, I don't know, for example, like they would get, they would have contest nights sometimes. Like Steve Rubell took a bunch of the barbacks in the, in the, basement one time and then they had an ejaculation contest for distance i don't know just uh sports they were at they had a uh, steve rebel was like what's got on the mic was like what's up we're having an ejaculation contest in the basement and the winner gets to go to barbados that's what they did they gave away a they gave away a trip to barbados to whoever could ejaculate the furthest in the basement giraffes just completely out of and it was a cash business too. If you got past the if you got picked to come in, it was fifteen bucks. It was nobody cared. And I, I looked up fifteen bucks translates into like sixty five dollars today. I think the seventies economy was fucked up. But again, if you got in, no, nobody cared about paying 60, 65 bucks. It was that you got picked to go in. But they were making that from the door from everybody. They were selling drinks. Now, here's, here's a funny thing. So, this is why I, I don't know if they thought it out all the way or what was going on here. But they, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell opened Studio 54 without a liquor license. Just none. What they did was that Ian Schrager would apply for a catering license every day in, like, the afternoon or the, the early afternoon or the late morning. He would apply for a catering license, get it granted, so then technically he could serve alcohol at Studio 54 under the idea that it's a catered event, but he was doing it every day. So I think it was less than a month into the opening of Studio 54, they got shut down for not having a liquor license. Like the cops fucking raided the place. They were like, yo, you are not, this isn't Maji, like, what are you doing? This isn't like a catering hall, this isn't a fire hall fundraiser. You can't be getting these fucking licenses every day. So they got shut down. 
here's the thing, it didn't matter. When they got shut down, people showed up the next fucking night, which I thought was funny because if you, either people like snuck in their own water, they either duct tape water bottles to their legs. I don't think anybody did that. That was just the way in my head, I think the smuggle booze, you duct tape around your leg from way you, I haven't done that in years. That's like a, that's like a little kid thing. Not a little kid. It's like, I don't know, 20, 17, whatever. Anyway, they would either sneak in their own booze or some people just didn't give a shit that there wasn't a liquor license. Which I, I, oh, this is funny because you just, it was all drugs. You were there for the music and the drugs and you get fucked up off that. And then, I don't know, you might have some sex. Fucking nuts, dude. It's Studio 54. What do you care about alcohol? It didn't put a dent in it. The other club owners were like, when they lost their liquor license, we thought we might be rid of them. Because the other club owners went the opening night that they had their first party. Fucking Cher showed up. The news. There's a ton of photographs. It was, Studio 54's opening night was crazy, but other... Uh, other club owners showed up to try to scout it out and be like, oh, congratulations, Steve and Ian, this is great. But when the other club owners went, they were like, man, we are fucked unless this place gets shut down. This place is huge. It's an old theater. There's a chandelier. There's a moon doing coke. I heard, the, I heard they're giving away a trip to Barbados in the basement somehow. I'm not sure what's going on. But when they lost their liquor license, it didn't put a, it didn't put a dent in them. They were a cash business. Fuck it, whatever. It, they're all, everybody's on Quaaludes anyway to go down and then cocaine to go up. It's fine. People smoke weed in the line. Booze is fine. And then they eventually got their... I think they did get a liquor license eventually. But then it, but then they then they got raided. So, it was a celebrity secret hideout. There's no phones, no camera. And the only, ca the only time you have to worry about getting taking a picture is that Steve Rubell would go around with a cameraman sometimes, so you would never get surprised with a picture if you were a regular person or a celebrity. And I don't think they took pictures upstairs at the Phantom's Ice Arena. I think they, I don't think they, and if they did, they probably gave you time, because it was a wedding photographer, like an old-school wedding photographer, where it's a huge camera with a big flash, and I was like, here we fucking go. So you know, it's nobody sneaking camera phone pictures and then it ended up on the internet. So if you're a celebrity, there's, this is a pretty awesome place to hang out. I mean, you're on the list. Everybody else coming in just wants to be there. They're happy to be there. Make you feel like even more of a celebrity because it's making regular people feel like a celebrity. Oh, one more thing about Andy Warhol. So Andy Warhol was such a big deal to come to have in this Studio 54 nightclub and have people know that he comes there. So I looked into what, what Andy Warhol did because I was embarrassed. I, didn't, I have no idea what the fuck. I know he did like soup cans and prints and Marilyn Monroe, but I don't, I didn't understand his impact. So Andy Warhol broke through abstract expressionist paintings. So pre-Warhol, there's a difference between commercial art and high art. I apologize if I did a poor job of this, but this is how I understand Andy Warhol right now. So Andy Warhol started as a commercial artist. He grew up in Pittsburgh and he went to New York and he got a job doing commercial art. And that's when... Now, he wasn't the guy who invented the blotted line technique, but he was the guy to popularize it because people were picking his work up. They thought it was genius. And so a blotted line technique, if you look at like um, Marilyn Monroe or because he did that one after she died, the Andy Warhol style where he prints and then prints and then prints and then prints. I don't know if the Obey guy gives credit to Andy Warhol. I mean, I, I guess he must have. I, I don't really know how that works, but sort of like the Obey guy would just do a number of prints. But Andy Warhol's prints would degradate as the prints would go on, and that would be the art, how he arranged it. So that was commercial art, but then Andy Warhol wanted to break into high art, and high art at the time didn't really want anything to do with Andy Warhol because high art held itself above commercial art. as like, oh, you're a commercial artist, you can't be high art. And so then Andy Warhol broke through that and became a high artist with a lot of controversy. Some people, a lot of people were like, this fucking, this is terrible, man. This is not high art. Some people were like, this is genius. It's about commercialism. It's about life. Like the soup can thing was the jump off point. I believe that was in 61 where he gets credit for breaking through prior art movements to, I mean, somebody said he revolutionized the way that art is perceived. And I don't know enough about art history to be able to validate that or not. But either way, having a dude who is known for redefining social norms back in the early 60s with a soup can painting and the guy who ushered in the next wave of art breaking through abstract expressionism 
and breaking through the idea of the label of a commercial artist into a successful high artist, and making that transition, having that guy as like the Philly fanatic of this of this party town, that guy represents breaking through old social norms. So to have him walk around, there was like an energy to that. And this is all pre-internet fame too. So you don't even like it's weird to see Andy Warhol walk. Like he doesn't Andy Warhol doesn't have like a Twitter or an Instagram. Like you don't know what his legs look like when he's not on television. There's probably all sorts. I mean, I couldn't imagine seeing seeing like Al Pacino in real life or anything like that. I mean, especially pre-internet fame where like you don't see, you don't really know that many people. I try to find an equivalent for like a, a party totem that would be like a modern day one for Andy Warhol. And I really couldn't come up with them. I'm embarrassed to say that the only one I could really come up with was Ben Affleck, but that really doesn't fit at all. But I don't know, just somebody that would make you want to be like, oh my God, dude, we're getting nuts, dude. Ben Affleck's here. I said it was a bad comparison, guys. Look, we've gone through it. I didn't really explain the World War I thing. But the way I was taught World War I in 11th grade by Miss McAndrew was that it's a powder keg. And so the assassination of that Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the thing, was one level of it. So there's five levels of a World War I powder keg. It's militarism, alliances, nationalism, imperialism, and assassination. All those things come together. And then Franz Ferdinand got a fucking shot in the head and it set everything off. And then you had World War One because everybody was kind of primed for a World War One. Like the military is it like technology had improved. Everybody was re up in their military. There was a lot of alliances that were pretty sticky. Everybody was feeling good about who they are coming out of an industrial revolution. Everybody in the country was like, I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best. And that guy gets shot in the head. And then World War One happens. I think Studio 54 is like that because it had all of the things at one place. And once it became known after it opened, even though it had tax evasion problems or it got shut down for a liquor license thing, because it had the music, the drugs, the money, the sex and the famous people. Oh, by the way, Dodie Fayette hung out there. If you listen to the princess Diana episode, Dodie Fayette, who ends up marrying the divorced princess Diana, he hung out at studio 54. But Studio 54 had all five of those things. Fame, sex, money, drugs, music. It had everything and everybody knew about it because it was, it was the nightclub for two years. Now, how did it fall apart? How did it get shut down? All right, well, six weeks, I told you they got raided for no liquor license. That was a problem, but that didn't shut them down. The real problem was that word started getting out how much fucking money these guys were making. And when I say word gets out, Steve Rubell was getting super fucked up and telling people and showing people. He would, because in the basement where they give away trips to Barbados sometimes, there was also a hidden safe. And so Steve Rubell would bring people down there and be like, yo, look at all this money I got. I'm so fucked up on Quaaludes. Look at this cash I got here. Nobody knows about this. We're having fun, which is fun. I'm not saying that isn't a fun thing. If some guy brought me down to the basement and showed me a bunch of cash and we were all partying a bunch of other people around, I'd be like, fuck yeah, dude, you got hype on that. But you can't do that. With everybody. Eventually, somebody's going to start talking about it. But that wasn't even what busted Studio 54. What actually did it... Okay, so... St Steve Rubell gave an interview in... Uh, I believe it was 1978. It was after the first year. It was after the 1977 year. So they asked Steve Rubell, like, so how's money or like, what's cash? What's going on? So Steve Rubell was like, oh, money's great. We cleared $7 million last year. At least it's going great. Things are good. You know, we make more money than the mafia out here. Don't tell the IRS. And it's like, oh man, it's like a lovable mistake. Cause the guy was probably in transition from some some form of fucked up to some form of normal or some form of fucked up to some other type of fucked up. He was either like coming off ludes. Go, I don't know when he did the TV interview, but he was, it, it was just a, it's just a whoopsie. It's just a mistake. And you can't say that on, on an interview, dude, the IRS is going to read that. And that's what happened. The IRS looked up like, all right, well, how much, how many taxes, how many taxes did Studio 54 pay last year? And they looked and they found in not in 1977, Studio 54 paid a total of, Either seven or eight thousand dollars total. They made Steve Rubell is quoted as saying we made seven million dollars and they only gave him seven thousand or 
Yeah, the only other seven. Once we're, one says seven thousand dollars, one says eight thousand dollars. I don't know the actual number, but that is not enough taxes to pay on eight million fucking dollars in a nightclub. So then the IRS hears about it, and then in nineteen seventy eight, two hundred fifty four is raided for tax evasion, which is a huge problem because things got carried away. There were definitely two, at least two sets of books. The IRS finds the second set of books, and then the the owner Ian Schrager comes in. While the FBI is raiding the club. Now, not a problem. However, it is a problem because Ian Schrager walks in and he has a bag in his hand. And that bag is filled with envelopes that are wrapped with Christmas ribbon and dressed up nice. And all those envelopes have cocaine in them. Because they're Christmas presents for the VIPs. For like Andy Warhol and Calvin Klein. And I don't want to name anybody. I don't really know. I just knew they were at least going to Andy Warhol and Calvin Klein. Also, apparently Tony Danza had a good time at this place. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to kiss and tell on this thing or anything, but Tony Danza would hang out here every now and then. He would have a good time. Anyway, so during the raid, Ian Schrager shows up. He's got a bag. It's full of cocaine envelopes that look like Christmas presents. The place is getting raided. Ian Schrager doesn't know what the fuck is happening. So he goes in his office downstairs and they found the safe. They found the safe in the basement. They found the second thing of books. The cops like... What's going on down here, dude? I heard something about Barbados. <laughs> they fucking find the books. So Ian Schrager puts the bag down that's full of cocaine Christmas gift goodies to shake the cop's hand. And the cop grabs the bag and he's like, well, that's now part of the scene. That's, that's part of what we're raiding. So they get, they get pinned for all that cocaine. All of all those drug charges for the amount of Christmas present cocaine envelopes they had while Ian Schrager just walked in to find his place getting raided. That's where the drug charges come from. So they get caught for a tax evasion and they get caught for drug charges. Now, the place doesn't shut down. They keep partying. The last party goes from February 2nd to February 3rd. It's after the guys get sentenced. Now, what, what Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell get sentenced for is tax evasion. They do not get sentenced for the drug charges. Their lawyer gets them off because the lawyer says, somehow they tested the cocaine that was in the Christmas gift envelopes and it was almost all cut. It wasn't, there was not enough cocaine in that, in those Christmas gift, actual cocaine to qualify as the amount of cocaine you would need to charge them with what they were charged for. So the drug charges were thrown out. Doesn't count. Does not count. That's mostly, that's shitty coke. That is Christmas gift, mostly cut coke apparently. So they got off on the drug charges, but they couldn't get off on the on the tax evasion. They got they got hit on that. They got sentenced to three and a half years, which was reduced to twenty months because they rolled on other nightclub owners who were skimming from the till. And they, I mean, what they they it said that they stole about two and a half million dollars, but they couldn't actually they couldn't really find out how much fucking money they were making. Steve Rubell was bringing home a coat of of just cash, just stuffing it, just nutty professor and. His giant coat on the way home with cash every fucking day. They found an extra, they found a half million dollars in Steve Rubell's car. Classic running the up down, fucked up all the time move where you're just like, yeah, man, there's just a half million dollars in my car. There's just cash all over the place. They got there, so they got sentenced three and a half years, got knocked down because they rolled on other nightclub owners. They were stealing from the till and they told them how they were doing it and who else they should go for. Drug charges do not count. They ended up getting out on 13 months. On good behavior. And they went to like a nice prison. They were held in like hockey glass cells. When they got arrested for like assassination risk. Like the kind I thought they were going to hold Epstein in when they arrested him. They held Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell in those cells. In those hockey glass Hannibal Lecter cells. Because of assassination attempts. And I only know this because the part of the book by Mark Fleischman. Who would then go on to take over Studio 54. After it's gone to the dirks. It's still a huge cash business. Even if Disco dies. Nobody has a reputation like Studio 54. It's so popular. And if the celebrities keep showing up, people are going to keep showing up. You can keep turning people away at the door, still making a bunch of money. So the book, uh, Mark Fleischman's book, he talks about how he bought Studio 54 off of Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell. And he did it through their lawyer while they were in these Hannibal Lecter cells. So they were in the cells. So they get sentenced real quick. They get, they get sentenced in November. And then the last party, the last night of the first run of Studio 54 it's February 2nd to 3rd, 1980. And when they go out, it's a huge party. It's a, it, I mean, it, they're going to jail already. 
it, the, the man on the moon comes down from the ceiling with the coke. Everybody's out of their fucking mind. Who's the guy from the Mothman Prophecies was there? Richard Gere was there. I think Cher was there. Everybody was all, it was the last night. It was the last night they were doing it. They blew it out, dude. They went nuts that night. And so when they go in jail, they're in the Hannibal Lecter cells. The lawyer brings Mark Fleischman into the jail. And the first time for negotiation of like, all right, what's up? My name is Mark Fleischman. I run a bunch of successful hotels. I've been to Studio 54. I love what you guys are doing. Let me buy this off you and make a bunch of money. What do you think? They do that first meeting on Visitor's Day at Federal Jail, which is totally fine. Now, the lawyer calls Mark Fleischman back and is like, yo, we're going to go. I got to meet you at the jail again. Uh, maybe we'll go see Ian and Steve again, whatever. And then he gives him a date. So the date that Mark Fleischman shows up to buy Studio 54, or at least to meet with the lawyer again, it's not a visitor's day at a federal jail, which means unless you are a lawyer, you can't meet with anybody. So Mark Fleischman shows up at this jail half thinking that the deal's like over because it's like, I know I can't get in. I'm not a lawyer. I fucking, I'm not going to get these guys to sign anything. So the lawyer for Ian and Steve shows up Shakes Mark's hand. He's like, hey, what's up? We're going inside. And then he hands Mark Fleischman a business card that says Mark Fleischman, attorney at law. Because he had, because only lawyers are allowed in to see guys on odd visitors days. And Mark Fleischman was like, what the fuck? And the lawyer was like, yep, this is how you're going to buy Studio 54. Are you coming in or what? And then he went in and he signed the papers with Ian Schrager and Steve Rubel. And then he took over Studio 54. But that's the end of the first phase. That's the first, then that, that just small run with the amount of money they made and the, the vibe they created, that's, that's what Studio 54 was. And, and during the 80s and anybody who's tried to imitate it, that was like the golden era of Studio 54. It was totally nuts. And if you were, if you were just like a regular dude in 1979, Studio 54, is that, is that my, is my wife in there? If she goes out with the girls, this is a, that's a tough play. I mean, there's no, I mean, she's fine, but it'd be like, Jesus Christ, you went to Studio 54? Is my wife in there? It's kind of like uh, Sean Penn. Is that my daughter in there from Mystic River? But that's a really sad scene. But if you just watch that scene out of context, it makes me laugh all the time. Anyway, guys, Studio 54. Incredible American nightclub. Got shut down. I mean, I mean, it comes back in the 80s. But that guest list, David Buss, Salvador Dali hanging out when they announced that ejaculation contest. You're looking around. You're like, is Pacino going to get in on that? Where the fuck am I? I saw a llama around here. Do I pet the giraffe? I'm fucked up on coke. Ran for two years. You can't, nothing lasts forever in the cold November rain, dude. Studio 54. Episode 54, Studio 54. Is my wife in there? Is that my wife in there? Guys, thanks for listening. I'll be back with Patreon on Thursday. And uh, I hope you guys all had a nice weekend. And uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, I'll see you.